I'm uh, especially excited as I think of the new year and the direction that we as a church are going to be taking in regards to prayer. And as we saw the names of God up here displayed uh, behind me, I'm excited to be coming into this passage and sharing it with you and just showing you the significance of the names of God, the significance of who God is and how that plays into prayer and even how we kind of battle through life's challenges, in this case, the wilderness, which is the backdrop of Psalm 63. And um, over the summer, I watched this uh, show called Survivor Man. I'm sure at least some of our guys here have seen it. And it's about this guy who would just travel the world, battling the wildernesses and taking on all kinds of challenges. And uh, at some point in those episodes, yeah, he was going to die. And, and that was with preparation and consultation, and the guy was pretty good. And uh, one of the things that I walked away with is like, no matter how well you prepare, the wilderness is a rough place. And though a lot of us might not uh, be familiar with, uh, with the actual physical wilderness unless you've been a camper or a soldier or stranded somewhere, I think we're all familiar enough to know that the wilderness is a challenging place to be in. And it lacks comfort and a lot of resources. And um, just wanted to share a thought here by Matthew Henry as he writes about a commentary on Psalm 63. He says that the best and dearest of God's saints and servants may sometimes have their lot cast in the wilderness which will leave us lonely, desolate, and troubled, wanting, wandering, unsettled, and quite at a loss what to do with ourselves at times in the wilderness. Matthew Henry continues, It is our duty and interest to keep up a cheerful communion with God. And in Psalm 63 we'll see that God is sufficient because He's God. We will also see the response that this truth elicits from David. I believe God has something to say to us today from this psalm. And my prayer has been that we leave here with a wider perspective as to who God is. And the result would be a life of prayer, praise, and contentment in the one true God. And just as an opening and closing prayer, I chose a prayer, uh, one of Tozer's prayers, because I think it so reflects my experience going through this passage and what I want to communicate to you this morning. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me. Glory to you, O God. Lord, I will utter that which I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. I heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes seeth thee, and I loathe myself in the dust and ashes. Lord, as I meditated, the fire burned within me. I must speak of thee, lest by my silence I offend against the generation of thy children. Behold, 
Thou hast chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. O Lord, forsake me not. Let me show forth thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. Raise up prophets in thy church who shall magnify thy glory and through thine almighty spirit restore to thy people the knowledge of the holy. Amen. Would you please turn with me to Psalm 63. And as we begin this psalm, we find David in the wilderness of Judah. Perhaps tired, hungry, sunburned, maybe a bit confused. He could have been in a cave that was cramped and reeked with body odor. Perhaps he was feeling even a bit bewildered about the events in his life. He's on the run, and yet, he's God's anointed, even a man after God's own heart. And in this rocky wilderness, maybe in a damp and cold cave, David prays to his God, the living God. Who do you go to first when you find yourself in trouble? David cried out to God, not in despair, but in worship. In an emotional exclamation, David starts off, Oh God, you are my God. David knew something specific about his God. In English, we have the word God. In the Hebrew, you have more descriptive words uh, of God beginning with El, as we saw in the background here. And El is the generic Hebrew word for any God. Elohim refers to the one true God. Some scholars say that the plural Elohim for God denotes a more intense form of El, as though the singular is inadequate for representing the supreme God. Others maintain that the plural indicates the Trinity. El Gibor is mighty God. So when he starts off with, Oh God, he's exclaiming, Elohim! You are my God. You are El Gibor. And the bottom line is that David knew something about his God. And dear ones, in this, in, to survive the wilderness, you have to have a proper knowledge of God. And this mental image that you have of God will determine not only your attitude, but your response in your wilderness experience. In the knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, he wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us is what we think about God. And this static image of God will define our worship as pure or not. Tozer goes on to say that we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And the same can be said of the opposite in that we move in the opposite direction, away from God, if we see Him as less than who He is. David saw God as Elohim, as the one true God, El Gabor as mighty, and His God. And David exclaims this not as uh, one who owns God, 
or even with human conceit, but in response to God himself who declares in Exodus verse 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God. And David's response is, you are my God. He expresses his worship to God in this wilderness. David was clear about who God is even under the circumstances in his life. Are you clear about who God is? How do you see him? David wrote in Psalm 29 verse 8, The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. I wonder if this came to mind as David prayed in the cave. God is the Lord of the wilderness and He is not defined by the circumstances of your life. But how you see Him and react to those circumstances will reveal your true understanding of God. What comes to mind when you are faced with with troubles? Is God your first thought? If so, how? I want to exhort you this morning. God is God and He's worthy of your worship for no other reason other than the fact that He is God. And when you begin to see Him for who He is, you will know that He is sufficient in the wilderness of your life. How did David come to such a knowledge of God? To refer to God as the one true God. And even to declare Him in the plural. That's something that can only be revealed No one could have imagined that. Let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 gives us a bit of a hint as to how David knew. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. The place that housed the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, and the place where the people came to sacrifice and worship was where David grew in the knowledge of God. Do not forsake, do not take for granted this place that we come together here to worship God. The Bible shows us in Psalm 22 that God inhabits the praise of His people. That ought to do something for you. God is here. He manifests Himself here through worship and you'll miss it if you come here relying on someone else to get you there. We will not grow as Christians alone. We need fellowship. Jesus said there were two or more gathered. I am there. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22-24, teaches us not to neglect meeting together as is the custom of some, but encourage one another with the confession of our hope, and that hope is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In addition to fellowship with God's saints and his exposure to the outdoors as a shepherd, David also learned through God's word who God is. David says four things about God's word, and if you turn with me, to Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8, and there's four things that are said there about God's Word. What it is and what it does. Number one, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Two, 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You want to develop your right thinking about God? Read His Word. God's Word is the foundation of our life, and if we stand firm on the knowledge of our holy God, we will stand firm in the storms of life and overcome whatever comes our way. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the difference between knowing about God and knowing Him. And I want to mention one more thing about David's worship in the sanctuary. It was there that he worshipped God, similar to us here in this building. There David beheld the power and glory of God. He beheld, illustrates his worship to me. He was fixated with God. Beholding describes a gazing to hold in view. He was mesmerized by God. God was the object of his faith, resulting in the object of his worship. These two things go together. You can't claim to be a true believer in God and not worship him. A true belief in him translates into the worship of God. In this place and in this act, David learned about his need for God and God alone. And the result was the quenching of the thirst of his soul and the craving of his flesh. Tozer described faith in the pursuit of God in this way. Like the eye which sees everything in front of it and never sees itself, faith is occupied with the object upon which it rests and and pays no attention to itself at all. And he goes on to say, Blessed riddance. When we stop looking at ourselves and the circumstances in our life, and we focus on Jesus. To anyone here who's struggling with any type of addiction, any kind, and you can't seem to find satisfaction in life no matter what you try, I want to say to you, look to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Drink of the water that He gives and you will never thirst again forever. And my prayer for you, my friend, is that you not leave this place without drinking from the well that is Jesus. And to you, my dear ones, who might be in the wilderness right now, the water you drank from is forever on end satisfying. David's conclusion then is that in the same way that he sought God there in that place, in the sanctuary, and God met him there, God would also, would also meet him in the wilderness. And he could worship him and find refreshment for his soul in the omnipresent presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was a huge thing for Israel. This is where God manifested his presence to Israel. But David also learned that God is not limited to a place, but that God is everywhere, and if we cry to Him, He will manifest Himself to you in your wilderness. God is with you. 
I can barely summarize these two verses, but I'll try it in this way by restating them like this. O Elohim, you are my God, and as such, Almighty. You are the quencher of the thirst of my soul, and in your presence, your all-encompassing presence, I have found fullness and joy, even in this wilderness. You can too, my brothers and sisters. I'd like to illustrate the difference between knowing about God and knowing God with the testimony of a pastor who was incarcerated because of his faith. He says, I was imprisoned in a labor camp. The authorities thought the best way to reform me, to torture me, was to appoint me to empty the cesspool of human waste. All the human waste collected from the entire camp stagnated in a cesspool until it was ripe. When it was dug and sent to the fields to be used, then it was sent to the fields to be used as fertilizer. The cesspool was very large, more than two meters in depth. It's about six feet. It was so deep that I could not empty it on the surface of the ground, so I had to walk into the disease-ridden mass to empty it with no equipment, just a shovel. And all that time, I had to inhale that horrible stench. My captors thought it was the best place for a Christian leader. Working in a human waste pit with a shovel in my hands. But I enjoyed working in the cesspool because I liked the solitude. He goes on. In the labor camp, all prisoners were under constant surveillance. None of us could be alone. Only when I worked in the cesspool on Saturdays could I be alone. Then I would pray to our Lord as loudly as I wanted. I could recite the scriptures and psalms of the Bible that I still remembered. No one could come close to me to close enough to me to protest. That's why I loved to work in the human waste cesspools. I could pray loudly and recite scriptures. I also sang hymns as loudly as I could. And in those years of and in those years, one of my favorite hymns when I worked in the pit was in the garden. And when I sang this hymn in the cesspool, I understood the meaning of garden and I knew where God was. I met my Lord in the garden of the cesspool. God will meet you in your wilderness. You might not be wallowing in feces, but you might feel as if you're drowning in a pool of despair, pain, guilt, feeling distant from God, wherever you might find yourself right now, God will meet you there because of his steadfast love. David knew this about God. In verse 1, in verse one we, took a, we took a look, we took a wide look as God as Elohim. And in verse 3, we'll see what it was that David beheld in verse 2. As we move on to this next point, how his steadfast love is mercy. 
David knew that God's steadfast love, or the word chesed, which we'll look at a little bit later, is better than life. Let's look at verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David came to this knowledge of God by way of his steadfast love. And I believe his understanding of God's steadfast love was like the wind under the wings for, of an eagle for David. I really believe that. It did something to him. David said of God's steadfast love that it is better than life. In Psalm 5, verse 7, I found the first mention of the steadfast love of God as I was reading through the Psalms over the summer. And I began to highlight and count the times steadfast love is mentioned. And I found steadfast love 127 times in the Psalms. Our understanding of worship revolves, revolves around our understanding of His love despite us. David saw God as Elohim. David saw God as El Gabor, Almighty. David also saw God as mercy. David understood the mercy of God because as he stated in Psalm 51, he was conceived in sin. I was conceived in sin. You were conceived in sin. We are sinners not because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. David in the sanctuary beheld the holiness of God. And though it's not mentioned directly in this passage, it is implied and it must be assumed because holy is the way God is. Because He is holy, His attributes are holy. And that is that whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. You cannot experience God without being struck by His holiness. And that is where His mercy comes into play. Sinful man cannot survive the presence of God. Mercy is God withholding what we deserve. God keeping us from eternal damnation. That's truth. But it's more. So much more. Even in the simplest of God's truth, there is more like a vast sea. In this case, His mercy. And all that God has revealed about Himself, He's infinite, endless, ineffable, describing the indescribable, and eternal, no beginning, no end. Always has been, always will be. And immutable, unchangeable, and absolute. And God's mercy is all the above. The main Hebrew word translated mercy is hesed. It's actually said hesed. As a weekend, that wasn't too hard. Hesed is translated by three main synonyms. Mercy, steadfast love, and kindness. Mercy is the outworking of the true love of God. This word, said conveys intelligently one's feelings, purposes, desires, and will. Without this word, 
has said the Bible is a dead book in which there is no revelation. Stated another way, you take the word mercy, loving kindness out of the Bible and there is no Bible. No salvation, no eternal life, nothing. David understood this in spite of his circumstances that God had not changed. God's wholehearted and passionate desire to do good is not diminished by the dark circumstances of your life. Remember that what God has purposed to do, He will accomplish. You look at the passion of the Christ. Jesus died for you, brothers and sisters and friends. And all the forces of hell could not put a stop to God's plan in displaying His mercy, His has said, in the person of Jesus Christ. Dear ones, the Bible says that He who did not spare His Son, but gave Himself up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If you ask for bread, he will not give you a stone. God didn't bring you out of the darkness from the wilderness of sin to then abandon you. He said he will never leave you nor forsake you. God is mercy, and the more you grow in your understanding of this truth, the more you will see that he is sufficient no matter what the crisis in your life is. And I will pose the question again. How did David come to such knowledge of the holy? Let's look at verse 2 again. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David looked and beheld God in the sanctuary, meaning David spent time in the presence of God. We need to spend time in the presence of God. In prayer, meditation, the reading and studying of His Word, and again, in fellowship. There is no other way, my dear ones. No shortcuts, no cliff notes. You must seek Him earnestly, as the image so powerfully communicates in verse 1. You must seek Him as one whose soul thirsts and flesh craves as one who is in a dry and weary land. Do you want it that bad? You seek God in this way and you will know for yourself by experience that He is Elohim, El Gabor, and Hesed. I put together a top ten list of things said of God and His steadfast love. And I just want to encourage you to make your own. Go through the Psalms and see what is what said about God's steadfast love. And just for the purpose of time, I'm just going to kind of run through them, but I think Eric's going to post it just to show specifically where I got these. But again, I encourage you. One, steadfast love belongs to the Lord. Two, we enter the presence of God through the abundance of His steadfast love. Three, God remembers us through His steadfast love. Four, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love. All the paths, even the wilderness in your life. Five, 
The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him and hope in His steadfast love. Six, His steadfast love extends to the heavens. Seven, God will meet you in His steadfast love no matter where you are. Eight, God's steadfast love is good. Nine, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And ten, His steadfast love endures forever, forever and ever. Remember what I said earlier about mercy, that is the outworking of the true love of God. David said that God's loving kindness is better than life. And David, a king, could have said anything else. But he didn't. David saw God and knew what he had. Even in the uncertainty of the wilderness, it didn't compare to the hope that he had in Elohim. Mighty God. Mercy. And how is God's loving kindness better than life? Well, I stated one of them. I'll say it again. It endures forever. And mercy is who God is. See, God's attributes are not a mere description of who God, of who God is. It's the essence of who He is. Life is cruel and unforgiving. Steadfast love tells of His kindness. In life, we get what we deserve. In His steadfast love, He withholds what we deserve. He keeps us from damnation. He keeps us from His wrath. His steadfast love is immutable. It will never change, dear ones. David's response to all of this, verses 1 through 3, was a look at who God is. Elohim, El Gabor, and mercy. Verses 4 through 11 are more about putting into practice this knowledge of God. And we'll be looking at David's responses. Again, his steadfast love is better than life. So what does this all mean? Such knowledge that is too great to contain ought to elicit a life of praise, a confidence in God that no matter what the circumstances are in life or even death, we can experience joy. And Paul said that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul understood something about God like David. The result for Paul was a life of rejoicing and a lifelong pursuit of God his Savior, even while on death row. With these truths revealed, David made a choice. In verse 3, David begins with a statement that is followed by statements that express a commitment to a life of praise as well as prayer in his God. I want to point out a few because of time. I can't do them all. But I want to encourage you, verses 4 through 11 in Psalm 63, get in there and dig them out. You'll be blessed. David in his responses says, one, my lips will praise you. In verse 3 he says that. And this is an outward expression of who God is and what he has done. Two, verse 4, he says, I will bless you as long as I live. How does one bless God? I don't quite know, but I was struck with this thought just the other day. One of my kids gave me a hug with no strings attached. 
a just because hug. And then I was told that I was loved. And I was blessed by that. In more ways than I can explain. God is blessed when we take time to express our love to Him as well as our need of Him. David said, I will bless you as long as I live. And he said this while he was still in the wilderness. Three, in verse five he says, My soul will be satisfied. To be satisfied in life is a choice that David made that was based on an understanding of God and who he is. David again uses a strong metaphor, food, in an attempt to express his satisfaction in his God. And I want to paraphrase this in this way. I will be satisfied in my God like the time I sat in Shula Steakhouse in Times Square in New York City eating a fine cut of filet mignon with the beautiful woman on our 17th anniversary. This is still a good day five years later. And I am just as satisfied now as I was then. And David was satisfied in his God while in the wilderness in the same way as he was in the sanctuary. David again uses with a slight but significant twist in verse 5, My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And there's a huge difference with being happy and being joyful. In a nutshell, to be happy is an emotion that is favored by immediate circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, is independent of circumstances. Joy rises above circumstances. In the case of Psalm 63, joy is based on the knowledge of the holy. David goes on to say that he will remember that he will remember and there might not be anything good in your current circumstance. But because David chose to believe in his God, he also chose to remember what God had done because God had done some things in David's life. And though he's on the run and uncertain as to how this is all going to play out, David was confident because he had been there before. And we see that in Psalm 34, Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. And God was faithful then and He will be faithful now and He will be faithful tomorrow because that is who God is. Another metaphor that David, that David uses is the shadow of your wing. And I wish there was more time for this one. In that place of security David was certain about his God and therefore David said I will sing for joy and in a nutshell the shadow of your wing is the presence of God verse 8 my soul clings to you obedience is a choice David's cling to God is a response to God's invitation to hold fast to him to hold fast to him And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. And there's other references 
uh, in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, where it just talks about this holding fast. It's a call to us as believers. And just kind of trying to explain this. We seek Him, but He sought us first. And we love Him, but He loved us first. God is always the initiator in this relationship. How will you respond to God in the wilderness? As you look ahead into the new year, will you cling to Him no matter what? Will you hold on? The choice to be joyful produce an outlook that reveals the confidence in God by David. Let's look at verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. David wasn't concerned about his enemies because he knew, he knew that God was greater. He was confident in his God. David was confident as to, as to the calling in his life. He expresses that in verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. Are you confident as a child of the king? As his child, you can be. Cling to him. Hold fast to his word. And if you're not a child of God, you can be one today. Just call out to him and he will save you. What will you choose to do today? What will 2010 look like for you? Is God a part of your plans? Sometimes we lose our way in the wilderness. The Bible shows us in Psalm 107 that some wandered in the wilderness. Maybe they weren't alert. Some sat in darkness as if trapped in rebellion. Some sat, some found themselves in the wilderness because they were fools. In all cases, this passage shows us that these individuals cried out to God and He responded. He met them there. Do not believe the devil's lies. If you hear God's voice, come to Him. Let us pray for you. God will meet you there. Psalm 63 has shown us that even in the wilderness of life, God does not stop being who He is. He is Elohim, El Gabor. He is mercy. And the result for you, just as it was for David, can be a choice to praise Him, to bless Him as long as you live, to be satisfied and sing for joy, to cling to Him, and to walk confidently because He is God. Hebrews 4.16 says, as I close, Let us all then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy to help in time of need. Would you pray with me please? Holy Father, your wisdom excites our admiration. Your power fills us with fear. Your omnipresence turns every spot of earth into holy ground. But how shall we thank you enough for your mercy, which comes down to the lowest part of our need to give us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and for the spirit of heaviness a garment of praise. We bless and magnify your mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Amen.